inconvenient. And I was growing increasingly frustrated with the inconvenience. So after I sat there for what seemed like an eternity, I finally approached the, the turn onto Pilgrim Road. I was going to turn left onto Pilgrim Road and go down to get on 94. And, but as I approached the turn, I couldn't help but notice a sign posted along the road clearly indicating that it was a left turn only. It was pointing people to turn left onto Pilgrim. So now all of that traffic that I set in on North Avenue was now turning left onto Pilgrim, and there was bumper-to-bumper traffic the entire way down Pilgrim Road. And so I just had an idea. I thought it would be wise to ignore the sign and take a shortcut through some of the surrounding neighborhoods to get to Calhoun Road. I thought if I can just make it to Calhoun Road, I'll, I'll go down that way and, and, and I'll avoid all of this inconvenience. I thought it was a brilliant idea. I figured we'd all arrive at the same destination and I would just avoid the huge inconvenience. And so I'm whipping my car around and I was quite chuffed with myself. I, I, I just couldn't understand why all the other traffic wasn't following me with my great idea. In my mind, I was thinking, certainly they're familiar with this area as well and they knew there was some shortcuts through the neighborhoods and, and I just thought, why was I the only one who was informed? but I was still pretty satisfied with myself. And, and at that point, i got to be honest with you, I, I was super impressed. I was like, hmm, follow me. Got it all together here. Got a secret you don't know about. And um, I have kind of felt sorry for those less informed people who were content to be tied up in traffic while I was sailing through Brookfield uh, with my alternative path. So as I motored along, I was pleasantly surprised that there wasn't any traffic on my shortcut road. And I actually looked in my rearview mirror and nobody was even following me. I was the only one on that road. And and so again, I'm secretly applauding myself for having such a brilliant idea. And I turned my music up, I'm just trucking along, and suddenly I noticed that although there were no cars going the same direction as I was, there was a bunch of cars coming back the other direction. And so, But I shrugged it off. And I continued commending myself for the bright idea that I had. And um, it was then that I came upon a detour sign, bright orange, sitting along the side of the road. And, and at that point, I did what any arrogant driver who thought they knew best would do. I ignored the sign. And I meandered a little further down the road, and I noticed another bright orange side sign, and this one said, road closed ahead. Now, I, I know that this, this is going to shock you. <laughs> But I was so, this is, I couldn't even make this up if I tried. I was so confident in my shortcut that, uh, that I dismissed the signs and I thought, well, they certainly don't apply to me because I know a shortcut and I'm going to get to this destination the better way before anybody else does. And so I quickly darted down another road that I thought would bring me out on the closed Calhoun Road and I didn't realize that I had inadvertently ducked into a cul-de-sac and now I hit yet another dead end. And imagine how surprised I was <laughs> that my shortcut wasn't working. But it was at that point that I had wished I had not ignored the previous signs or better yet that I had just stayed on the original path. 
Instead, I had stubbornly taken a shortcut that was bringing me nothing but problems. And some of you are laughing because you know what I didn't know. You know what obviously the remainder of those drivers did know, that Calhoun Road was closed the entire way down. And so I couldn't now get to my shortcut. I had to turn around, take the detour, and go the whole way back uh, and sit in that traffic that I was trying to avoid. The signs were there for a reason, and I just ignored them. There weren't any shortcuts. I should have just stayed on the path that was marked out before me. Instead, my stubbornness caused me to get lost and took me way out of my way, a whole lot more out of my way than if I had just stayed on the marked path. And as I drove that day, I was thinking about this sermon series that we're going to begin tonight. I'm calling it The Path to Pleasantness. Um, because there is one way to abundant life. One way. Not a bunch of ways, not any shortcuts. And God has clearly marked that path out for us in his word. We all want life, but so often we want to take a shortcut to find it. Maybe I can find life in this illicit relationship. Maybe I can find life in drugs, or maybe I can find life in alcohol, or maybe I can find life in success or the, the, the number of degrees behind my name. Maybe I can find life in a bigger house. I want a shortcut to life. God, I, I know that you say you are the only way to life, but, but there has to be a better way. There has to be a way that wouldn't inconvenience me so much. As I was driving that day, I was thinking, I just didn't want to be inconvenienced. I wanted a shortcut that would get me where I was going faster. And, and we look at life and we want a shortcut that will get us to life faster than God's way. We don't want to be inconvenienced by his do nots. But we want life. Can I tell you there are no shortcuts? There isn't a better way. God's way is the way that leads to life. His pleasant path leads to pleasant places. God's word and his commands are a spiritual GPS that instructs us to the, the pleasant places in life. His word are those road signs in our life directing us and guiding us. And they're given to help us and, and to keep us from, from doing things our way. And just like there was a consequence uh, for me ignoring the road signs on my way to Calhoun, uh, there were consequences or there are consequences for ignoring God's commands as well. God's commands are designed to reduce pain and suffering. I, I wish that I could convey what he's teaching me. I can't, I was saying tonight in prayer, I can't seem to convey what I'm learning. I can't seem to get it across even to our team, let alone to a congregation of people. And I desperately want to. Tonight, we're going to begin the, a sermon series that I think I'll continue till Christmas, and I'm going to talk about how God tells us to do something, and, and he tells us to do it because it'll bring us life and not death, and, and we think there's a better way. We think there's a shortcut. We think we don't have to obey, and in doing so, you see, the Bible says there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. 
And I wish that I, I wish I could convey what he's teaching me. I'm going to teach tonight on Psalm 16. And it's, it is uh, the psalm that you've heard me reference over and over and over. It includes the verse uh, that I've said many times, that your pleasant path leads me to pleasant places. And I'm telling you, I'm in a season where I'm finally understanding, please don't wait two years old as I am to get this. I'm in a season where God is teaching me that his pleasant paths really do lead to pleasant places. Can I tell you that I have looked for life everywhere. I have a past. I have a history. I have a testimony that would make your eyes pop out. And it's because I tried to find life in all other places except in him. I was raised in church. I was raised knowing his word. I could quote his word inside, outside, and backwards, but I didn't live his word. And as a, as a result, I left a wake of destruction in my past. And all along, not realizing that his pleasant path really did lead to pleasant places. There are no shortcuts. So many of us, myself included, never truly experience the fullness of life that Christ wants us to have because we insist on doing it our way. We insist in taking our own path instead of his. But God has given us his word to guide us and direct us in the way of life. And that's what we're going to spend the next couple months looking at. All of his commands that say, do this and you'll have life. Do this and you'll avoid pain. Do this and, and you'll know joy that's unspeakable and peace that passes all understanding. The reality is, it is only staying on God's pleasant path that will cause us to encounter his pleasant places in life. He is the way there is no other. And his way leads to life. The challenge is, do we really believe that that's true? And we have to get ourselves to the point in life where our default is to consistently embrace his word even when it doesn't make sense, even when it seems that it's going to inconvenience us. It, to embrace his word as truth and know that it will lead us to a pleasant place. If you have your Bibles tonight, open them to Psalm 18, or I'm sorry, Psalm 16. Psalm 16, I'd like to read to you uh, from the ESV. In some of your Bibles, as you open it, you will see uh, the heading says, A Mictum of David. Uh, there's temptation to skip over that little line and dismiss it, but, but it's really important. It's important that you understand what a, what a mictum is. It only occurs in six psalms. This one, Psalm 56, 57, 58, 59, and 60. And, and there's a reason for that. The word mictum means an engraving. It can mean golden. It can mean graven. It can mean a permanent writing. It can mean something that's precious, hidden, a secret, a spiritual secret, or a jewel. It's rendered in the Septuagint by a word meaning a tablet inscription or a stelograph. A stelograph is the practice of chiseling an inscription on pillars or uh, tablets. And it's regarded as denoting a composition so precious as to be worthy to be engraven on a durable tablet for preservation. A psalm precious as stamped gold. That's important. Because what David is, is saying here is the truth that's going to be revealed to you in this psalm is, is, is a spiritual secret. It's a, a treasure that you should engrave and stamp on your heart. It, that word mictum comes from the root word meaning deeply stained. 
I looked up the word stained because I, I wanted to know what Webster's had to say about it. And, and it said to be marked, <laughs> to be marked or, or, or to be a penetrative, dye, a penetrative dye. And I chuckled when I read it because I thought, David is saying this spiritual secret I'm about to uncover and, and, and unveil to you is so precious it's hidden that the people, you can't understand it unless you've experienced it, unless you go searching for it. But it's such a spiritual secret and it's so precious and it's so, so, so valuable to you that you need to engrave it on your heart. You need to stamp it on your heart. You need to let it penetrate you so it changes you. Do you remember playing hide and seek as a child? I was with my grandsons this past week and they love to play hide-and-seek, and, seek. and I, I was hiding behind the curtain in, in our hotel room, and, and, I, and they couldn't find me, and, and they were searching everywhere, and, and then they, they moved, and they could, they could see my feet, and, and they came over and whipped the curtain back, and they both just squealed with excitement because they uncovered my hiding place, and it was exciting to them. Some commentators think this word mictum means to hide, and it signifies a secret or a mystery that needs to be searched out. David is saying if you search out this mystery, if you really uncover what's hidden in this text, you're going to give squeals of delight. It's so good. David was saying he discovered a spiritual secret that was hidden and not obvious to the natural eye. If you look at the word uh, where mictum is used, the psalms where mictum is used, well, what you'll see is that it's always used in a psalm that's talking about trouble or adversity. And what David is saying when he uses that word is he's saying that he found the secret. Oh, can I tell you if you miss everything else that I say tonight, don't miss this. David is saying he found the secret to overcoming trouble and adversity because who knows in this world you will have trouble not you might please don't be surprised when you have trouble it's a promise God says Jesus himself said in this world you are you're gonna have it count on it but David's saying I have found the spiritual secret to adversity and trouble here it is engrave it in your heart and in each of these Psalms he uncovers a spiritual secret that will change and transform our life and so we're going to look at this one in Psalm 16 tonight the theme in these mictum Psalms is that even though trouble and pain may come in our life, even though our enemies may seem to be prospering, God will always be faithful. He will always be good, and he will bring you and I through triumphantly every single time. And that's a truth so precious, so golden that we need to engrave it on our hearts. There is a place that you'll discover in Psalm 16 that David is saying there's a place of contentment and sufficiency that can be found in the Lord in the midst of difficulty and troubles. Where do we usually turn when we have troubles or difficulty? Somebody tell me. What are the places that we turn? Somebody? Friends. We turn to friends. Where else do we turn? Food. Mm. Where else? Your mom. What are some of the worst places that we turn? Alcohol, drugs, sex, illicit relationships. David is saying, in the midst, uh, there's a place of contentment and sufficiency that can be found only in the Lord that will bring you through troubles and trials 
and adversity. And we're going to see that in Psalm 16 tonight. Permit me to read it to you. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent one in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. David says, preserve me, O God, for in you I put my trust. David is doing what he did so often. He's crying out to God in a time of trouble and trial. He's saying, I trust you, God. Save me, protect me, guard me, preserve me. It's a statement of belief. He's saying, no matter what I'm going through, because I trust you, I know that you'll keep me safe. I know that you'll protect me. I want you to note that this psalm is not a desperate petition. It's a song of confident trust in God. David, even though we know from commentators tell us that at this time when he wrote this, he was facing trouble, he was facing another trial, we know that he was not in despair when he wrote it. Can I tell you that you can go through troubles, you can go through trials and not have to live in despair and hopelessness. David was not in despair when he wrote this psalm. It was a confession of trust. He had confidence in the Lord and his ability. Can I ask you tonight, do you have confidence in the Lord? Do you have confidence in his ability? He is God and there's nothing impossible for him. for him. We've got to settle this in our mind that he is powerful, that he is mighty, that he is God and there's nothing impossible for him. I don't care how whacked out that sounds. That is the truth. And we've got to settle it in our minds so that we can begin to walk in victory and not defeat. Don't forget, don't miss the quiet confidence that comes through in this verse. This psalm is all about finding security in God and not in this world. The world teaches us to find security in a bank account, in the number of degrees behind our name, in our achievement, in our accomplishments. But David is saying that the only place we can find real security is in God. So the first takeaway we see in this psalm is that God has the power to preserve those who are his as they put their trust in him. Those who trust in the Lord will not be disappointed, Scripture says. That's comforting to me. Notice Dave said, David says, preserve me, O God. It's interesting to me. When we think of God, we might think of only one name for God. 
but the Hebrews had many titles for God. Um, and this is one of them here. The word is El in the Hebrew language. It means the strong one. So it is the weaker crying out to the strong for strength here. The word actually means mighty hero. I, I like that. I like Marvel. I don't know about you all, but I, I like to watch that. And so heroes, my, my grandsons are going to grow up to have heroes. And uh, uh, can I tell you that God is your mighty hero? He is your superhero. David is saying, preserve me, my mighty hero, you who are the strong and mighty one, the one in whom I trust. Other commentators say that that word El means the ever-present one, and I, I really like that. Because what a comfort for us as believers to know that when we face the fire, when we go through trials and hardship, that we can cry out to the ever-present one to preserve us and keep us safe. One of my favorite names of God is that he's a God who sees. Oh, can I tell you? He is the God who sees. He sees everything you've gone through. He sees every tear you've cried in private. He sees you. He's the God who sees. He's the ever-present one. And when you cry out, he listens. He's the one that the scripture says, he's your very present help in times of trouble. David says, preserve me. Guard me. Be a hedge about me. Keep me safe. I, I, I want you to notice that the psalmist, David, cannot protect himself and neither can you or I. We instinctly try to protect ourselves, don't we? David says, I'm running to you as my refuge, my, my hiding place. And it's interesting to me that some of your translations use the word refuge there. In Bible times, there were cities of refuge. Do, do you know about cities of refuge? Where, where people who could run into that city of refuge and find safety when they were in trouble. And the same word is used here in reference to God, that he is our refuge. He's our very present help in trouble. He is the one that no matter how much trouble you are in, you can run into him and find safety. He will preserve you. He will guard you. He will hedge you in and keep you safe. But the problem is, will you run to him? Or will you run to something else? Will you take a shortcut and try to find it in something else other than him? Verse 2 says, O oh my soul, I have said to the Lord, you are my Lord. My goodness is nothing apart from you. David was bowing to the lordship of God here, to his sovereignty. He's reminding his soul. What, did I, what, what have I said the, the word soul is? It's your mind, your will, your emotions. He's reminding his soul of the lordship of God. He's telling his emotions to line up. Under. Do you know that the word lord there means the one to whom someone belongs and has the right to decide? The one to whom I belong and who has the right to decide in my life. You see, we call him Lord. Jesus himself said, why do you say Lord, Lord, and yet you don't do what I tell you to do? You're calling me Lord, and Lord means that I have the power of deciding in your life. If I tell you to go this direction, to do this, I am the Lord, and I have the power of deciding in your life. So why do you call me Lord, Lord, and yet you don't do what I tell you to do? David is saying, my soul 
<laughs> Look at that. I, I'm telling my soul. Oh, my soul, you have said to the Lord. You're coming under. I'm telling my, my emotions to come under the lordship of God. And I'm telling you that some of us sitting here tonight need to tell our mind, our will, our emotions to come under the lordship of God, to bow to his authority, to do things his way instead of our way. Some of us need to get our emotions under that lordship. I don't feel like forgiving. Well, you know what? Your emotions need to come under his lordship and forgive because it's the way to life. It's the way to life. Lord, there's two lords mentioned here. The first one is all capital letters, and it's the ancient Hebrew idea of Yahweh. It, Yahweh was the covenant God of Israel, the God of the Exodus, the, the great I am, the God who said, everything you have need of, I'll be for you. That's the word Lord there. The second Lord is Adonai. It's capital L, lowercase o-r-d. And, and that word is master. That's Lord and master. That's, that's the, the one to whom I belong to and who has the power of deciding in my life. And so these three words together, David is saying, Yahweh is my master, the one who wants covenant relationship with me, the, the one who promises to be everything I have need of when I need him to be everything he is. That, that's, he is my master. He's my Lord. He's the one I'll bow to. He's the one I'll come under the lordship of. Isn't that easy to do when, when you know he wants to be in relationship with you? That he promises to be everything you have need of when you need him to be everything he is. He said, oh my soul, you have said to the Lord, you are my Lord. That word, you have said, that word is amar in, in the Hebrew. And the word amar is interesting to me because when I say I said this to you, it just implies that I spoke words to you. Are you with me? But in the Hebrew, that word said, I said to the Lord, it, it, it means, it implies that what is said is followed by actions. How many of you know that James says faith without works is dead. When you say you have faith in me, but you don't do what I say to tell you to do, your, your faith is it's dead. Because you say that, but it's not followed with actions. And that was the Hebrew mindset. When you say something, it's going to be followed with actions. Skip Moen, one of my favorite Hebrew commentators, says the only people who say something in he to the Hebrews, the only people who say something but do not do it, are liars. So when he says, you are my Lord, Moen says the phrase is not simply a declaration of belief, it's an obligation to action. If Yahweh is my Lord, I'm obligated to follow his direction. He's my Lord. He's my master. Slaves follow the direction of their masters. They don't talk back. They do what their masters say. They don't take shortcuts. They don't, they don't do what, what they want to do and go their own way. I said to my soul, you are my Lord. I'm coming under your lordship. I don't live according to my own rules. I don't ignore what my master says. So David begins this psalm by asking God to keep him safe, to be his refuge, his hiding place. He's asking him to preserve him. And he's saying, because I put my trust in you. And then he goes on to say, you're my Lord and my master. I'll do what you tell me to do. 
It's interesting, Skip Moen says, the role, of a mas the role the master plays is contingent on the submission and fidelity of the slave. Too many times we hear Christians cry out, Lord, Lord, but they don't do what the Lord says. That means we're not as slaves. We don't use the word uh, amar because our words are not followed with action. And from a Hebrew point of view, they're not confused, they're carnal. We don't use that word much. But when we say something to the Lord, but we don't follow it with actions, we're a carnal believer. Verse 2b says, my goodness is nothing apart from you. The New King James says, it says that, but I like the Aramaic. It says, my goodness is found in your presence. I really like that. My goodness is found in your presence. Can I tell you, ask my family. My goodness is found in his presence. I can get up in the morning and be in a crappy mood. I can be irritable, and, and I can get in his presence, and everything seems to change because my goodness is found in his presence. It's when I'm in his presence that he speaks to me. It's in his presence that he changes me and he transforms me into his likeness. The NASB says, I have no good besides you. I, I like that. But my very favorite is, you are the only source of my well-being. I have no good apart from you. And it translates, you are the only source of my well-being. Can I just say this to you? And, and I, I want it to penetrate I, because I, I learned the hard way. And can I tell you that he is the only source of your well-being? I, I tried this. You cannot get drunk enough to, to get well-being. You, you can't get high enough to get well-being. You can't find enough men to love you to get well-being. You can't buy enough to get well-being. You can't have a big enough house to get well-being. You can't succeed enough to get well-being. He is the only source of your well-being. You won't find it anyplace else. Trust me here. I looked. People say, why are you so whacked, Rhea? Why are you so, so, so freaky religious? It's because I looked everywhere else for well-being. And I want people to avoid the pain and the heartache and the wake of destruction that I left behind me looking for well-being in anything other than Jesus. I promise you with all of my heart and soul, you can find well-being in him. That all hell can be breaking loose in your life. That everybody around you can be messed up, drugged up, and drunk up. And, and you can find a place of well-being in his presence. He is our only source of well-being. Some commentators say that this can translate, God, you are my supreme treasure. And, and I like that. David is recognizing God as the only source of goodness in his life, his supreme treasure. Derek Kidner says this psalm can be divided into two sections, verses 1 through 6, how to make God your supreme treasure, and verses 7 through 11, the results that follow because you've made him your supreme treasure. And I, I like that. Verses 3 and 4, all the saints who are in the earth, they are the excellent ones in whom are my delight. And then he goes on to talk about those who rebel and chase after other gods. He says, their sorrows shall be multiplied who hasten after another god. Their drink offerings of blood I will not offer nor take up their names on my lips. It's so important that we realize that chasing after other gods will only bring further pain 
and sorrow into our life. When we chase after the money God or the sex God or the success God or the drug God or the alcohol God or the power God or the relationship God, these things we chase after will only bring us unhappiness, sorrow, more pain and heartache. We think they're a shortcut to life. We think they're a shortcut to goodness. We, we think they're a, a shortcut to well-being. But like my shortcut through the, the city of Brookfield or the town of Brookfield, it only leads us to dead ends. He is the only source of our well-being. He's saying those who chase after other gods only gain more trouble and sorrow. When they compromise their faith, they weaken their loyalty to God, and that only brings more pain and sorrow. I like the Passion Translation here. Some of you don't like the Passion Translation. I, I'm not going to argue with you, but I like it here. It says, yet there are those who yield to their weakness, and they will have troubles unending. I will never gather with such ones, nor give them honor in any way. Yet there are those who yield to their weaknesses. When we chase after other gods, when we yield to our weaknesses, we, we make those things gods before him. We, we say, I can find what I need in this thing better than I can find it in you, God. This thing will fulfill me and give me satisfaction more than you will, God. This thing will give me well-being, and, and I can't find it in you, God. We make it a God before him. He says, I'll have no other gods before you. I promise you that if you have another God before him, he is a jealous God and he will deal with it. He will make you miserable chasing after that God or, or he will, he, he'll make that God fall before you or, or something will happen because he's a jealous God and he is jealous for you. He loves you with an everlasting love. You belong to him. And when we give our best to another God, when we give our best to, to, to the things of this world and bow down before them, what we're saying is, this is where I find my well-being. This is where I find my satisfaction in something other than you, Lord. Those who yield to their weakness will have troubles unending. This is God's word. Verse 5, O Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You maintain my lot. I, I like that. You, Lord are the portion of my inheritance. Uh, can I just tell you that man's greatest treasure is the Lord. My father died uh, a couple months ago, and, and he didn't have much. Um, but I got a call from my sister. He did have one. He did have a life insurance policy. And, and she said, Rhea, I'm sorry to tell you this, but my older brother and her were listed as the beneficiaries. And she said, you weren't included. And the Lord said, Rhea, I am your inheritance. You could inherit all the money in the world and die and go to hell. And that inheritance would have bring, brought you temporary satisfaction. 
You could have inherited a little bit of money and it could have been spent tomorrow, but I am your inheritance. It's me, Rhea. It's me that will satisfy you. It's me that will give you every good thing you need. It's me that will be everything you need me to be when you need me to be everything you are. I am. It's me, Lord. It's me, Rhea, who will provide for you. I own the cattle on a thousand hills. You don't need a life insurance policy to provide for you. I am your inheritance. Do you see it? He said, you are, the, uh, you are the portion of my inheritance in my cup. You maintain my lot. I love that. You see, my portion, that's the inheritance of father leaves his son. My cup is the goodness a host offers his guests. You're everything, Lord. You're the best of everything. You are more than enough. Verse 6 says, the lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a good inheritance. You see, this is the secret to a happy life contentment. To be content with the lot you have been given. To not desire something else. To to be able to say, Lord, this is the lot you've given me, and I'm going to be content with this. Dave and I work with men who have have sex addictions, and and they're chasing after other women. They need attention from other women. And I want to say to them, I take them to the scripture that says, be content with your wife, the wife of your youth. Can you just be content with her? Because it would cause people a whole lot less pain and heartache if you were just content with the lot that you've been given by God. Because God knows you, and obviously, he knew you needed that wife. So can you just be content? with the inheritance you've been given, with the lot you've been given, with the portion you've been given. But see, we're never content. We want more. We think we deserve more. We think we know more than God. The Passion Translation says, Yahweh, you alone are my inheritance. Hmm. You are my prize, my pleasure, and my portion. You hold my destiny and its timing in your hands. Can I tell you that he holds your destiny and its timing in his hands. Some of you are waiting for that next big break or you're waiting for a ministry that puts you on a platform. You're, 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 can I tell you, he holds your destiny and its timing in his hands. Some of you are sitting here tonight, and I, I know you, I, I pray for you. I, I know the destiny that, that you have been created for. The Bible says that before you were born, God called you. Do you know that none of you are here by mistake? <laughs> you are not the result. I take great comfort in this because remember, my mother had an affair, and I was conceived in that affair. I take great comfort in knowing that I'm not here by mistake. I'm not here because a man and a woman decided to have sex. I am here because God ordained me. He ordained me. He said, I want Rhea here. And before I was born, before I was ever a thought in my mom and dad's mind, God called me. He put a purpose. He put a plan. He put a call in my life that only I can fulfill. That's why I get so frustrated with people who who are off doing God knows what with God knows who because I wanted to say you have such a call on your life. God put such a purpose in you that only you can fulfill and you are missing out because the God of the universe thought you were so great that he put such a call in your life. He ordained you for this moment in this time for this purpose. 
and we try to find purpose somewhere else, oh, can you just love me and give me purpose? Will you make me feel like I amount to something? Oh, come on. God, before you were born, called you. He put purpose in you. Stop trying to find it from Susie down the street or Sam at work. And start walking in the divine destiny that he prepared for you before time ever began. There is nothing more satisfying than doing what God has called you to do. This is where the Passion Translation says, your pleasant path leads me to pleasant places. I'm overwhelmed at the privilege of following you. Oh, I love that. Your pleasant path leads me to pleasant places. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places is, is what the, the, the ESV says. And what he's saying is the boundaries that you've placed in my life, <laughs> you've placed there because they lead me to pleasant places. And when I go outside of those boundaries, boundaries, to try, try to find satisfaction, to try to find happiness, I promise you it is only going to lead to sorrow and trouble. It is staying in his boundaries, in the boundaries of his word that leads me to pleasant places. Verse 7 says, I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel. My heart also instructs me in the night seasons. I love this because can I just tell you the Holy Spirit is your counselor. The Bible says that he is a wonderful counselor. In fact, there's a scripture that says you and I don't even need a teacher because the Holy Spirit will teach us. It will guide us into all truth. He is the supreme counselor, the wonderful counselor. He will say, this is the way, walk in it. He'll be that voice behind you. He'll instruct us. He'll counsel us in how to walk through life. He wants to be your counselor. The Bible says in verse 7, I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel. My heart also instructs me in the night season. For those of you that aren't my age, trust me, take good notes. Because you get to this age and all of a sudden you can't sleep all night. And my eyes pop open and I'm like, all of a sudden the whole weight of the world is on me. I'm solving all kinds of problems for everybody and everything. I, I, I'm rehearsing and rehashing stuff in my mind and I can't get back to sleep for anything in the night season. That's the night seasons. In, in the dark times of my life, yes. But in the night season, uh, my heart also instructs me because I found refuge in him, because I've made him my Lord, because I, I've set him always before me. Now my heart, I can trust my heart to instruct me. In the, in, in the night seasons, look at verse 8. It's my very favorite. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. Th this speaks of a decision on David's part. It's a decision on our part as well to set the Lord always before us. What it means is that he is David's priority. He, he's, he's the he, David has made him first in his life. Of all the other things vying for David's attention, of all the things vying for David's affection, everything that would compete for attention in David's life, he's saying, no, Lord, I have made you the priority. I have set you always before my face. I am making you first in my life. And because you are there, I shall not be shaken. This is so important. This is a takeaway. I'm just telling you. Because I don't like to be shaken. Anybody besides me, uh, would you say that you don't like to be shaken? I don't like to be shaken. 
And so I'm looking at this verse, and, and David is saying, because I've set you always before me, I will not be shaken. So I, I want to know the secret of not being shaken. It's by putting him always before me. I, I got the team together a few weeks ago, and, and I was talking to them about the things that the Lord was teaching me, and, and I was stressing to them the importance of setting him always before you, making him the priority, always seeking him first, making time for him above everything else, not having anything else compete for your affection, always making him before you, because when you do that, you will not be shaken. You will not be shaken. You won't be moved. Some of you are sitting here tonight, and you are being shaken. You have something weighing heavy on you. Your life is messed up. You're shaken, and you're shaken to the core. You're full of anxiety. You're full of fear. You're full of depression, and it's because of this. You have not set him always before you. You haven't made him your priority. You've made your trouble your priority. You've set your trouble before you. You've set your memory before you. You've set what Susie down the street did to you before you. You've set your, your, your marriage issue before you, but you have not set him before you. Because you are always, because I've set you always before me, I will not be shaken. Look at that. Most of us live the opposite. Because I've set such and such before me, I am always shaken. <laughs> David's faith is the lens through which he views everything. It's a picture of undivided focus. It's a decision to put God first in his life. He settled it in his mind that all, God would always be his priority, his first thought. McLaren says, the effort of faith is the very life of devotion. God is our, is our only, God is only our reali in our reality when we are conscious of his nearness. I, I like that. I've set you always before me. That can also be before me in, in the choices that I make in life and the path I'm walking on, that he's our guide. And then he says, because you're at my right hand, what's the right hand? Power, authority. I, I, I like that statement, because you're always at my right hand. Again, it's another statement of faith. He's trusting always that the Lord's presence is there. He's not questioning whether the Lord's presence is with him. He's not questioning an unseen God. He said, because he's at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Because I've made him first, because I've made him my priority, the result is that I'm secure and safe no matter what comes at me. Because he's at my right hand. The right hand is the hand of power and authority. So that means because he's at my right side, anything that comes at me to shake me has to get through him. Because he can't be shaken, I won't be shaken. Again, the Passion Translation says, Because I set you, Yahweh, always close to me, my confidence will never be weakened. For I experience your wraparound presence every moment. Verse 9 says, Therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh will also rest in hope. David continues to describe the benefits of placing God first in his life the blessing of keeping him before him. It makes his heart rejoice. It brings glory to his life. He's not going to be shaken. Verse 10, for you shall not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Not even death can separate us from him. Verse 11, you will show me the path of life in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You will show me the path of life. 
confidence that God will guide him and direct him into life. Notice he said, in your presence is fullness of joy. Not there might be, maybe there will be, if I'm doing well today, I'll get fullness of joy in your presence. No, in your presence there is absolutely settled that if I get in his presence, I'm going to have fullness of joy. It's a confident assurance that nothing can dis d diminish that joy. The only thing that diminishes it is my choice not to get in his presence. Notice it's not the presence of a best friend. It's not a presence of a spouse. It's not the presence of a bottle or a drug. It, it's in the presence of the Lord that we find fullness of joy. This verse tells me that in this life, uh, the only true pleasure I can find is in him. I was thinking about Sam's dad as I wrote this. Um, Sam's dad passed away this week, and, and I'm so sorry, Sam. But I got to tell you that I, I wrote that, and I wrote in the margin, Sam's dad right now is experiencing fullness of joy, not temporary joy, the fullness of joy, because he's in God's presence. David was looking forward to a time when he would experience fullness of joy by being in the presence of the Lord. You and I can get in his presence every day and have that joy infused in us. I want to close with C.S. Lewis's quote. <laughs> we are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant, to, meant by the offer of a holiday by the sea, we are far too easily pleased. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition while infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday by the sea. We are far too easily pleased. David is saying, my satisfaction comes from the Lord that I'm not going to look to anything else in this world for satisfaction. It can only be found in him. Everything I have need, everything I have need of can be found in him. All my satisfaction can be found in him. The only goodness I have is found in him. My inheritance is in him. My portion is in him. My lot is in him. The pleasant path in my life can be found in him. Everything I need is found only in him. This is our first secret that we're going to discover as we go through this series, is the, the pleasant path, the way to, the, to pleasantness is found in making him your supreme treasure. Imprint it on your heart. Engrave it in your mind. Stamp it on your life. Take it from somebody who knows. There aren't any shortcuts. It can only be found in Jesus. Let me just pray for you as we close. Father, I thank you for every man and woman here tonight. Lord, I believe that you're who you say you are. And I believe you're mighty to save. That you are our deliverer. That there is nothing more powerful than you. And there's nothing impossible for you. Forgive us, Lord, for looking to other things to satisfy and to bring life. 
Help us to recognize that you are our supreme treasure. You are the only thing that can satisfy. Father, I pray that you would awaken our souls as we go through this series, that you would tune our ear to wisdom, that you would soften our heart and hearts, that you would help us to encounter you, Lord God, in a way that we never have before. Would you bless these people, Lord? Bless them with greater revelation of who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.